happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for October the 10th, 2018, episode 110. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am coming to you, as I generally do, from Oklahoma City, where it is wonderfully cool and was an absolutely beautiful fall day um, after a crazy bit of rain with some tornadoes that just came out of nowhere yesterday. Crazy. Um, and I'm normally joined by or with Jason Neifer, uh, who is in Missoula, Montana, but Jason is on extended assignment, apparently evangelizing, you know, the importance of the virtual school like all over North America. We're not exactly sure where he, he is, but I'm so excited that June Kim is joining me. Um, I assume from Moore. Is your home in Moore or where, where is your workplaces in uh, Moore, Oklahoma, but uh, I reside in Norman, Oklahoma, just, uh, just down the road. You were a little, a little closer to that severe weather that happened yesterday. So yeah, it was interesting during the morning, uh, commute. Did you, did you guys starting. take, take shelter, uh, yeah, a few of our schools did take shelter um, as it as it blew by. Okay. Well, uh, June, I know because of Ed Tech or Ed Camp OKC, which uh, we help organize together and have for a number of years. And maybe I don't know. He's he has <laughs> he has duty as an Air Force Reservist. Is it going to fall on the right weekend this this year, or do you know yet? We I think you guys uh, made some accommodations for me to attend this year, so it is on my calendar, and I plan on being there. Awesome. That will be so great. <laughs> no one has invested more in EdCamp without actually getting to be there the night yeah. of. So seriously, we, yeah. we will have to come up with some, some kind of little special award for you. So yeah. anyway, we're uh, what 1.2 million uh, metro area around Oklahoma City. And so more Norman are to the south and Edmond where uh, we did live and still go to churches to the north. And anyway, we're surrounded by lots of suburbs, but um, you've got a lot of a lot of kids and devices. And I know that you support both 365 and Google. So anyway, we'll probably talk some Google stuff uh, since it was such a big announcement this week. But we want to let everybody know that you can check out our show notes at edtechsr.com slash links, where we have a Google Doc with far more links than June and I will have a chance to talk about tonight. Also, we have a chat room, and I'm going to bring that up on another window. Um, I see we do have a viewer, and that might be Peggy George. And we want to say hi to whoever is going to join us live and also encourage you to participate in the chat. And if you have anything to, to toss out there or questions, then we can do that. So uh, we mentioned before we started the show that you said privacy and security is your rock, Um and I don't know, I guess I can throw out an article and then we'll, we'll tie it in there. So under, we've got a lot of articles under security. Um, I'll throw this one out first because this is one of the more, wow, controversial and like, what do you believe? But this is from Bloomberg on October 4th. China used a tiny chip and a hack that infiltrated U.S. companies. And this is a crazy allegation that a lot of tech folks are not sure you know, whether it's legit or not, because they're they're saying that both Amazon and Apple and all these other companies have this really tiny chip, like the size of a grain of rice mm -hmm. that was phoning home and compromising these systems. And that China's like government and military, I think, is the is the allegation here to be nation state level stuff um, has done this to infiltrate companies. However, and this is not from a mainstream media uh, source, but this is from the Risky Biz podcast, which I've never heard of before on October 9th. Uh, but it says, name source in the big hack has doubts about the story. 
And what this is bringing out, and I think, I don't remember if I found this one from Twitter or not, but um, it's, it's, it's saying that, you know, when they were asked to produce the evidence and Amazon and Apple were very categorical in their denial of this and like some of the Apple stuff, like they're like, Yes, we have people that study this very thing, right? They don't just put servers on the rack and like, ooh, I hope they're just doing their own thing safely by themselves. They're like monitoring the packets. And if you have stray packets that are going weird places, that's the kind of stuff IT people look for. Um, so thoughts? Are, are, are you convinced? Do you think Bloomberg, I mean, it'd probably be the end of these people's careers if they tried to break this kind of Oh man, it, you know, reading through this thing, it was uh, crazy because I'm right in the middle of this because through the E-rate bid process, we actually, uh, a Japanese or Chinese uh, company actually won the bid called Huawei. So we are uh, in that conversation with that company and the people who won the bid, as well as uh, watching very carefully with what the FCC is doing um, and what kind of rules are going to come down on um and so it's it's i'm on pins and needles but we have you know the e-rate process has some outs in which we can make some changes as needed um but there's nothing right now most of the stuff that we're hearing is on cell phones there's very few things that that e-rate does for us in our servers and our access points things of that nature but it's still a pretty pretty scary situation in that regard. So um, um, we're anxious to see what happens and with the rules making process, because we've made some comments on that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, fa- I mean, we were, effect- have been affected in a similar kind of level with Kaspersky. And we've talked on the show before, and both of these are situations where the U S government and military and uh, law enforcement, Homeland security agencies, have made pronouncements and even rules. So like in this, in the case of Kaspersky, <clears throat> which we licensed a few years ago, and so we're in a multi-year license for both our Windows machines as well as our Macs to run their antivirus and anti-malware, you know, uh, the U.S. government is basically not allowed to run Kaspersky uh, on their on their systems. Now, some of the stuff I read about that said Kaspersky gives such a low-level access of everything that's in the system that if some, it, it's not it, it's not definitive that Kaspersky was a willing partner like with the Russian government as far as hacks, because if you're able to some other way get access, you could use Kaspersky in their logs to like search for SCI or these other codes that mean classified, and then you can immediately find things on these different systems. Anyway, it's not anything we've been challenged by. I don't think our school is a target, you know, of, of the, the Russian government or whatever. But that's where a current event has caused us to look and say, you know, should we be running this? And so I think with Huawei, similarly, you know, there have been allegations of uh, I think the person who founded Huawei ties ties to the Chinese military. Um, And it's one of these things that I think we dimly peer into with with the unclassified, you know, public um, documents and things like that 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 come out. And, And whenever it comes to breaches and things like that. There's there's a, a challenge because you know, we never know the whole story. And, you know, security agencies and others, <clears throat> I think, are well, people are restrained and constrained in what they can share. And, you know, part of that is is like if, if you share what you know, then how did you know that? And wow, you knew that much. So it's really a cat and mouse thing. But uh, I uh, 
I haven't really seen anything like this that's been a security issue that's been so contested. And yes. so, it, you know, it just seems like today we hear about fake news, but just truth and like what what to believe. Um, I really think that they're going to need to come out with evidence. I think they said they had something like 17 different sources and they were saying there was CIA and, you know, different intelligence agencies. But I think they're I mean, they're going to need to come out with some proof. There have been these allegations, but like. You know, where do we have the proof? And so Bloomberg on October 9th had another article that says a U.S. telecommunications company finds fresh evidence of, of China hacking tech hardware. And the thing about this this breach, which is um, which would really be troubling if it's if it's true, is this isn't like a software thing or just somebody gaining access to your system, um, you know, by by connecting and, and then using their their terminal skills. This is like an actual hardware change made right. to the hardware and so if this would be true, it could possibly call into question the whole supply chain and idea of, you know, having these components produced in China. And so what would that do for us yeah. as far as like? Well, and, you know, and, and, and I don't know the, the details of it, but, you know, there are several companies that's going to be impacted on this. You know, Apple, you know, was one of those companies that used this company uh, for when they found this out. Uh, and you got all these banking companies. So how much of it is it true? We'll, we'll probably never know the, the details of it, but the implications uh, are pretty, pretty severe, uh, especially if you start using this uh, equipment in schools, you know, uh, yeah. in the servers and whatever else that you're putting in. And if we're using these Apple products, I mean, think of all the information that we're putting in through the apps and the kids creating login information and yeah. what that implies down the road for these five, six year olds that these folks are data mining. Now, yeah. are they? We know. We don't know. I don't know. Um, I One of the stories I remember that you shared with me um, a few years ago was about disaster recovery after the F5 tornado. So, I mean, uh, you have you are probably um, as steeped in disaster recovery and backups and the importance of of good vendor partners that can ride to your rescue, you know, when things happen like that. So, I mean, I would think that your your schools are in are in good hands and a good place with all of that kind of stuff. But that's whenever. I don't know. I mean, this the, the hacks and things like that and, and privacy breaches are different than than disasters. But it all it has to do with data. It has to do with protection. And when right. you said that that's your rock and one of the things you're really, you know, sort of, I guess, um, you know, sort of pounding the pavement about trying to get people to be focused on uh, what does that look like uh, for your schools and, and how do you how do you evangelize security and safe <laughs> procedures, you know, amongst teachers as well as staff? You know, that's a that's a. You know, I say it's the big rock because it's right in front of us. Nobody uh, ever trips over that big rock, that big boulder, but it stares us right in the face. But, you know, it's usually those pebbles, those small things that we we tend to miss and we trip on and fall on um, but there are certain big rocks that has to be moved and these big rocks are very difficult to move because of past practices uh current beliefs whatever it may be human or nature i mean like just, you know using the same password and resistant <laughs> to say no you really need to choose a different <laughs> one for that yeah absolutely so it, it's it's a lot of it has been slow movements. Um, I use the COSIN framework. Um, I actually sent you a link on uh, some of the toolkits that they use. 
Um, and it really has started out with uh, a self-evaluation of our practices. Um, where are we now? Um, and going through that checkbox and really analyzing, do we have proof that we're doing it? Do I have documentation that I'm doing it? Um, we say we're doing it, but are we? Um, and everything from those tenants of the IT director side and our network security, as well as professional development, the leadership mentalities uh, from our superintendent to the directors of curriculum or instruction, whatever it may be, and, and down to the classroom uh, use. So doing that self-analysis and going, okay, yeah, we're okay here, or man, we really need to have some issues. I think every school needs to do that, whether you're an IT director or a classroom teacher or a support personnel, everybody is tied into the school network and everybody needs to be aware that their decision-making skills not only impacts them, it impacts everybody in that, in that network and in that district. Um, so we've started doing that and we started uh, uh, on my side, on the IT side, really hammering that down, working with vendors, and we started doing a, uh, a checklist. Uh, anytime a new vendor comes in that requires either staff information or uh, requires student information to log in or collects that information, they get a vendor survey. What are you doing with that data? How are you storing it? Where is it being stored? Where is it being transported? Third party, you know, all these questions. And if there's some yellow flags in there, we start diving a little deeper and going, okay, where are you at? What are you yeah, doing? Absolutely. And so, so we get, we grade them, you know, green light, yellow light, red light, red light. You're not getting on. You're not touching anything of my kids or my staff. And so that's been a training uh, with my, my, with my district leadership saying, Hey, there's a potential now that if it doesn't meet the needs and doesn't meet the security requirements, we, we probably need to look for another vendor. We need to look for another software. So. It's been slow going. We're, we're about a year into this process, uh, training our staff. We started implementing password changes, mandatory password resets every year. Uh, what about two-step? Have you guys gone to, to two-step? We're, we're getting ready to start looking at that. And uh, I wanted to roll them in slowly. Um, changing passwords yearly has been a big change for them. Absolutely. Um, but we'll probably start that with um, in the next year or so with our people with uh, high level access to data. So all our finance and personnel information, uh, administrators, things like that, that has, has your credit card information, has your payroll information, things of that nature. Right. And then we'll slowly move down to student access, you know, but most of it for the teacher side is training. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, as we get ready to start rolling one-to-one, -one, I'm going to have to start telling teachers or start training them saying, Hey, if you're taking this to Starbucks, Great, but don't log into their network, Starbucks network or McDonald's network, and log in with your password to your grading program or things of that nature because that just causes a whole other potential issue with all this yeah. um, spyware and everything else that people are just pulling that information. So that's a great segue to another article, which I'll mention, but I'll say last summer, no, summer before last, we we refresh on a five-year cycle and, uh, and our teachers have laptops 95 percent have macbook airs and then we've got a few windows folks uh more windows folks on the on the business uh 
staff side than we do on the teacher side. But we actually, I think for the first time when they were getting their new laptop, took that opportunity because they've signed their laptop agreement before, but to say, hey, we want to meet with you for 20 or 30 minutes and go ahead and go over some things. And going over the password manager, we're not requiring it, you know, we're not managing it as a school, but teaching them LastPass, showing them how to install that extension on either Chrome or Firefox, and talking that language that, you know, we've all probably at some point, and maybe still, use the same password on multiple sites. Um, we didn't use, actually, during that training, the Have I Been, been Pawned website. I've used yeah. that before, you know, talking to the whole, you know, faculty and staff. Um, cause that's kind of alarming when you see your own email and what breaches it's been involved with. But anyway, that was, I think just such time well spent with them. And that's, uh, that was part of, we, we took over a year to roll out the two-step. And so that has been, you know, I think we've been doing that for about a year. Of course, now we realize when you look at breaches and, and things, you know, the cell phone is actually still a target. And so, if we were going to want to be like Google and be as secure as we could be, we would need to go physical, uh, you know, mm -hmm. object and, and some kind of a, of a, a USB key or whatever. But the article that segues to is actually by Susan Bearden, who I just love to follow. And she actually is working for Cozen now. And uh, it's the second to the last in that. It's the sniffers, snoopers, and hackers. Oh, my, protecting yourself from the risks of public Wi-Fi. And um, I love the name of this website. It's Furpa Sherpa. Um and uh, so this is the Education Privacy Resource Center, which I had not, not heard of before. Um, but that's what she's talking about here. How susceptible when you're on a public Wi-Fi are you to having your packet snooped, um, being able to get malware? You know, how do you how do you protect yourself? Um, you know, one way is is through tethering your phone. And I find myself doing that more you know, when I'm out and at airports, uh, things like that, even hotels, you know, could be very susceptible. Um, I remember this was probably five or six years ago. Um, I was in North Texas or at, T I was getting to adjunct at North Texas. I was going down there once, once a week. And that's when I was working on my dissertation. <clears throat> but anyway, I was going to coffee shops because I'd spend a night there. And uh, at DEF CON, they, somebody had come out with this um, Fire Sheep extension for Firefox. <clears throat> and I think I only knew about this because uh, James Deaton, who used to be with OneNet, now he's he's with other higher ed consortiums for lots of really powerful <laughs> yeah. computing with more bandwidth than we could ever dream of. Anyway, he had I men mentioned it, but like this was so eye-opening because what Fire Sheep lets you do when you were at a coffee shop or a restaurant or whatever is visibly see all the traffic that was unencrypted. And that was before I think Facebook had gone HTTPS before right. the whole push with Google and, and the web really to say, look, encrypt. Uh, and so like there was somebody there who was logged into their WordPress site and like, I did nothing malicious and I hope I'm not, you know, admitting to doing some kind of a, <laughs> like I clicked the link and then there I was in their WordPress dashboard and I was yeah. just logged in. And so, for me, you know, having a bunch of WordPress sites, and I have not, full disclosure, made that whole shift to HTTPS for all of them. I mean, it's a huge thing to see, wow, my passwords are unencrypted, and people can just see them in the clear. And so I think this is an area where even I consider myself pretty savvy, and even the savvy, a lot of times I do not think take this seriously at a, 
yeah. you know, coffee shops. Do you use a VPN service or, or, or do you no. tether or what do you, what do you no, do? No, I, 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 we use a, uh, um, if I'm on using my district stuff, I have a, uh, MiFi that I use. Um, I very, very rarely, uh, connect to a, a public website or a public, uh, Wi Fi. Uh, especially on my system because I have information on there, even though most of my, I would say 99% of my stuff is in the cloud. I still log into that cloud to access that information. So I'm constantly transmitting packets there. So I, I very rarely do that. Um, and, but for the, for the regular normal teacher or the or principals that are, you know, sitting at the coffee shop, just entering discipline or looking up whatever information that, that it, it scares me and I may be overcautious as I talk to my, my district leadership saying, Hey, am I being overly cautious? Um, but here's the ramifications if I'm not. And it's that fine line that we talked about earlier is, is, is how do you, uh, convey that information with leadership that has done it a certain way for so long. And you as an IT director that has an educational background, you're wanting to open things up more for your kids and for your staff, but you're going, Holy cow, where's, where's, where's that pendulum swing from IT versus ET? You'll never hit that sweet spot at the, at the, at the baseline. And so you're constantly going back and forth. Um, but I think a lot of that has to, has to be teacher training because right. all this stuff is, is pretty recent. I mean, if you think about the role of IT in education, it's pretty new. It's just grown so fast. Yeah, and most cool. of our staff has, they're just getting into it and they're understanding how to use it in the educational realm, Yeah, but they know how to use it. They don't understand in some cases, Oh, I shouldn't have clicked that or I shouldn't have done that. Well, and the implications it can have for your network, for your student data, you know, for, for everybody. I mean, it can, yeah, it's, it's even, you know, the simplest thing is, is downloading an application or going to a website where uh, teachers find this great website uh, and they're creating student logins for them. And instead of creating something generic that doesn't have the student information, they're actually using the kids' full names. You know, all this information going, what are you thinking? But they don't know any better. And because nobody's told them that, nobody's trained them on that, saying, okay, here's here's where you got to be careful. So do you avoid using student last names then in emails when you create a student email account? No, we, we use full emails. Okay. first and last names because right. we have so many kids here it, it's to create you know we won't right. get into all that stuff right. i mean right. every, every district's different right but we use the full full email and which is fine um but you you when they get down to it i'm showing hey you know see that bottom line that says privacy policy you might want to click on that and see look for certain words right. hey yes we're sharing data Yes, we're going to collect all the information you put in here, right? You know, or yeah. hey, this stuff is going to across the pond. Even though there's no laws against it, there's some there's some pretty potential issues when you do save that data across the pond. Well, we're so really in a wild west time of this, and we've talked on the show before about GDPR and about other proposals. I think maybe there's a link we've got in there about. It just it was like, well, I'll just I, I'll do a shout out for it. It's under the, the Google, but it's, uh, or maybe, no, it's under net neutrality. Don't force Google to export other countries' laws. This yeah. is a New York Times article from September 10th. Right. Talking about how, I mean, we risk this fractured internet now because right. 
we could have not just, you know, schools and, and organizations, but like nation states demanding, you know, data be housed within their borders and things that would really contravene the foundations of the internet, which is this idea of free flow of packets and, and things right. being able to be in different Oh, it, it'd be detrimental to uh, ISP providers or even the, the browser companies like Google or Firefox or whatever it may be that transmits that information. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from that article, that's that's where they're targeting is, hey, Google, you can't send our information across there. And if you can't, well, we're going to block this site, whatever you're going to. Well, from- well I want to let's switch and talk a little bit about Google. I want to do a shout out, though. Scott Summer is in our chat room along with Peggy. Scott said he just finished up the Google IT certification, uh, which sounds awesome. great. And he said they reference a vendor security assessment form. Scott, I'm trying to promote you in our chat. And Peggy, maybe you can figure out, because at some point I promoted Peggy. There are no promotion options now, because you can't, in the uh, YouTube chat, if you can't have just regular visitors, um, you know, put links in. So I have, I have uh, five options, Scott. I can go to your channel. I can report you. I can remove you. I can put you in timeout, or I can hide you. <laughs> So it doesn't give me the option to say, allow, allow Scott to, uh, you know, post links. So anyway, maybe we can get that with some other way or if you want to uh, either tweet it. Um, but that's I hadn't heard of that Google IT certification. Um, our assistant tech director who uh, left in mid-August is uh, actually at Tinker now. And he's been doing some training that he has just loved that has been fantastic in terms of network security. And uh, I haven't actually, I don't think gotten those links from him, but you know, he, a couple of years ago, he went on the summer, we uh, sent him to Rose state cause they had a cybersecurity mm-hmm. uh, week that they were doing. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think we're, you're right. It just, this stuff has happened so fast and we're, uh, we're trying to, to catch up, but it's, you know, even with our network and the way that we have been, well, we were just kind of a flat network that grew and we have multiple VLANs, but we are not where hopefully we will be, you know, by the end of this year, next summer, as far as full segmentation um, of, of uh, you know, student and, and even just having faculty being plugged in and having access to land resources. I mean, really, we're just thinking you need the internet and your printers. Right. In some cases you need access to, you know, Apple TVs and, we're working well, out, you know, what's the best ways to do that. Well, Wes, I think part of the the thing that where we're at is we're we're thrown into this mix of, you know, for me, over fifteen hundred teachers that we're trying to manage, and I'm not sure how many numbers you have, but as an IT director or even as an ed tech director that is trying to train these teachers up is difficult, if not almost impossible. And I think this is where you know companies and vendors that provide support to schools need to not just sign a document that says, yes, we will protect your student data, but actually start talking to each other and really start focusing on how are they helping each other out to make sure that we're securing this stuff. Now, Google's made a lot of progress in the last few years. They used to be that open platform that everybody loves because you can go everywhere, which is great for the consumer, but for an education world, it, it has some ramifications there. And they just made some changes on how they're uh, allowing or disallowing some of that data to go outside uh, some of the apps and things of that nature and how they're sharing it, even on their Gmail, being able to hear that a little bit more and monitor some of that stuff that the GDPR requests, you know, Uh, 
so they're seeing, even though it's consumer-based, it, it, these are things that schools need the support of vendors and, and different companies to say, hey, we understand this is very important, not just for the regular person, but for schools, especially kids where they're just starting out in life and we don't want to destroy their credit history or their, their future digital footprint because teachers don't know what we're doing in some cases. And even IT directors don't know what we're doing sometimes. And we, we make some decisions that may may or may not willingly or knowingly make some of those decisions that impact the kids. So, Absolutely. Uh, well, let's talk about a couple of Google articles. I thought there were some a few from the event that I put in. I don't know. Maybe I put them in the wrong place. But the uh, Engadget article on October 8th titled Google Limits Third-Party Access to Gmail and Other Account Data um, is, uh, you know, I think referencing what you're talking about as far as they're, they're making some changes to be clear for G suite, you know, Google's always handled that differently for G suite for education and right. they're not mining student data. And, you know, cause I, I know I will not mention names, but another surrounding Metro area district, I mean, there'd been, there's been board level, um, controversy over Google wow. and privacy and their concern about, you know, student student data being compromised and things like that. Um, and I think that was a case of, of really not being properly informed as far as the ways in which they are very serious about protecting that data. But, you know, with Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, elections, all of that kind of stuff, the access that many times we just click through to say, oh, yeah, accept, accept, accept. You know, when that's going to third parties, um, you know, that that can have big ramifications, especially if you're if you're talking about student data and everything that's you know happening inside a school. Um, well, I guess. Yeah, I guess I, I do have that that article. So there's a um, article about Google Plus. Um, maybe. Well, OK, this is PC World and this was from the eighth. Google is shutting down Google Plus after exposed u- user data and neglected to tell anyone. Um, one of the important things about this, and this is, a, the, you know, Google had an event, uh, what, yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. And there were lots of, of discussion. Of course, almost everything was leaked before that event, which was kind of interesting. But uh, Google announced this on Monday. There, there wasn't actually a breach, um, but this was a vulnerability, and this data was exposed. And so they're not shutting down Google Plus for G Suite um, organizations. So right. it's fortunate because we just started last summer using it for a book study and, and having different people, you know, post a reflection and encouraging teachers to share. Right. So when I saw that, I was like, no, don't take it away because we've just started it. But for the consumer side, and I don't think we're sure yet how quickly that's going to happen, which that seems like a fairly draconian thing to do. Um, there's been lots of jokes about how few people are on G Suite. There's actually a, my favorite um, Google plus environment is, uh, and you may already be a member of this, it's the Google, the G Suite admins. Uh, it was called Giuseppe admins. It's a mm-hmm. Google plus community. I think most of them are out of Iowa, but man, I mean, they are, they have a podcast and uh, they, they do, you know, some live shows at some area tech conferences, but it's a great, great community of, uh, of admins for G Suite. So, you know, questions about anything, it's just been such a great place to go. But 
I think that experience is probably an outlier. Most, you know, what they say, the average time spent on, on Google Plus for most users, like 85% of users is like five seconds or something. So, <laughs> like, oh, I hit the wrong button. Yeah, that's, you know, and I know that when Google Plus came out, I was like, oh, great. Here's another, you know, mm -hmm. social network. And I just felt, you know, kind of compelled that I'm going to have to be, be a part of it. Um, so any of these announcements, um, I, and then we can talk a little bit about the Google event, I guess, as far as yeah, the products you know, and the, stuff. The big thing I think on, you know, those two takeaways, those two articles you mentioned on, uh, the Google plus and, uh, Google limiting their, uh, third party access. I, I think it all stems together in, uh, the outrage or I don't, I don't know if outrage is the right word, but. People starting to get be more aware of data breaches and how it's impacting them. Um, and and Google even mentions, hey, there was nothing wrong, nothing was taken, no data breach was occurred. We just found some vulnerabilities. But as soon as you mention that, oh my, oh my goodness, here we go. The world is coming to an end. And wh where's my information? Where's all this? It's kind of like uh, when um, I don't know if you remember when Pokemon Go first launched. And uh, people were using their Gmail and uh, that company actually was pulling all the data out of that. Uh, well, I won't say they were pulling, but they had access to all your data. Uh, if I remember the article uh, correctly, and they had to make some changes. Um, and so when that came out, I remember the first, that was within the first couple of years of me taking this job over is like sending that email blast email out. Hey, if you, I love Pokemon myself, but if you are playing that and you are using your Gmail or school email for that because it's tied to their Gmail, get off of it. Change it up because if you have any PII information, if you have any 504s, IEP information, student information, kill it, kill it now because until they fix it, they have access to your information. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's where Google is coming to see and really is trying to start Seeing that, hey, love the open resource and, and love these different companies that are trying to tie into that. and But they're also seeing, hey, maybe we need to be more careful and let let the users be more aware of what information is being pulled or have access to. So this is exactly what I was talking about in that these companies, these vendors, these service providers need to be, they need to tell us because we don't know what we don't know. Uh, especially on the end user side and, and for the common person, we're a little bit more aware because we're in it and we're trying to resolve it and, and we're researching it. But the, the common, uh, educator that's in the classroom, they're not going to read the, read up on those unless something happens to them or they get that, that email that, you know, um, that pawn site that you mentioned where, months years ago there that their information got leaked and now they're getting this email saying hey that new thing now is we watch you watching porn and here was your password you used and they're going oh my gosh what do i do and here comes the blast emails going hey just ignore it yeah. you know but yeah. if you still use that password change it absolutely yes. absolutely so, well, yeah, and so much of this is phishing in fact we can do another shout out to a, a good article about that which uh, may have been shared by Susan Bearden as well. And if you don't follow Susan Bearden on Twitter, she's a fantastic person to share. Uh, it's called, it's from the Atlantic on September 12th, how to protect yourself from a phishing attack by hackers. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, not naming names, but we had a teacher this summer 
And we've had several of these spear phishing attacks, which are, you know, targeted uh, like from our headmaster, supposedly with a, you know, non-school G account, but a Gmail account. Yes. And literally this person, this teacher received messages. He said he was in a meeting and he needed help and he needed, he needed iTunes gift cards. <laughs> gift cards. Yep. And he bought a oh. couple hundred dollars of them and had started to send those and then you know, thought maybe I should check and then call the school and uh, no. Oh my goodness. In fact, and I was in Target a couple of weeks ago and there was just, I was in the electronics area and then somebody was looking for gift cards and the, and the, the guy working there said, oh my gosh, we just can't keep these on the shelf. This has been just one of the biggest ways that money gets moved overseas, you know, through these gift cards and, and just people are being tricked left and right. So oh. uh, this, this. Well, I got I got one of those uh, emails from one of our fellow tech directors with his name, President uh, Tech Director or something like that. And um, I started playing with this guy. I actually uh, generated some uh, iTunes codes, fake ones, and sent him five codes. And he goes, hey, these aren't working. And so I said, well, call this number. I can't help you. I'm busy, but call this number. So I gave him the number to the SEC fraud, fraud case. Never heard back from him, so we'll see. You know, I may end up getting spammed a lot more later because I've messed with them. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> okay, so let's tell some personal stories. This is so weird. I, I wrote a blog, but I don't blog that often. Uh, I need to be doing more of that actually. Um, but I was fished over the phone, not by a robot, but by a person last week who said, uh, you know, they're calling it, it was like a debt collector, you know, bill for the University of Central Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And need to verify some information. Uh, can you please give me your street address? I said, "Whoa, wait a minute! I'm not. What is this about? I'm not just going to give information to somebody mm -hmm. calling. No, I, I can't tell you. Um, you know, until we verify uh, what the last four of your social. No, what is this? And you called me. She <laughs> would say it's a mis miscellaneous. Um, you know, miscellaneous charge, but I got to verify. And we just went back and forth, and I finally hung up. But like. Anyway, it was that was not a robot. That was a real person. Accent was it Russian? I don't know. It was foreign. <laughs> but uh, boy, that that just it does feel like an intrusion. And uh, well, shoot, I gotta go ahead and mention this too. This wasn't the my geek of the week, but uh, let's see. Under other, wow, uh, I've discovered this podcast called Today Explained mm -hmm. on Vox. It is fantastic and. Their most recent episode was called All My Friends Are Robocalls. And um, they have the author of this Washington Post article, which I put in here too, from January. It was January 11th, how robocallers outwitted the government and completely wrecked the do not call list. And so the author of this is Simon Van Zulen Wood. And he does a great breakdown of the history of robocall or of, uh, of basically spam, trying to trick right. people, you know, from the beginning in the late 1800s when the first phones in Chicago were, were installed by very wealthy traders, people have been working to trick you, you know, out of money. Um, but, you know, the statistic that he said in the podcast is like in January, there were estimated 2 billion robocalls per day mm -hmm. and it's over 4 billion now. That's doubled wow. in the, you know, this year. And, and the prediction is that over half of all phone calls before long are going to be robocalls. So help that, that gets back to the education piece that you were talking about, you know, and it's, we've got to help educate folks because, you know, shysters have been around since time immemorial. 
we're doing more and more online. So if, if there's just more of society online, then, then the criminal element is going to increase as well. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of ways that we can be tricked. Um, and hey, if, if John Podesta and Colin Powell can be tricked, you know, yeah. probably any of us could be tricked if somebody was, you know, targeted and yeah. focused enough on our lives and just say, I'm going to get so and so. So let me ask you this question, because, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you get this um, because you're the expert in helping uh, teachers out when things are happening in the district. But are you are you seeing more questions come to you about their personal stuff? Hey, I got this on my personal email or this, that and the other about what they're doing on outside of school. Because I'm starting to see a little bit more of that, which is great, because um, that's just one more way to help them. Are you saying like so they're checking checking with you to say if the legitimacy of something yeah, that they yeah. received? Yeah. Uh, not, I mean, well, definitely password wise. I mean, in fact, that's one of the reasons we went to recommend LastPass as a survival method because some of the most stressful interactions I've had with staff are, are really around Apple IDs and resets and and need to do that. And so some of those are personal, but. No, not not as much. Um, our, our the one thing about the Kaspersky that's interesting is if it finds something, it roars like a lion or a tiger and really alarms people. And so we do get calls when people, you know, have have that happen. And um, you know, but it's I think it's probably been more more school related. Um, well, but one was, of one of the things that we have with our Microsoft suite is uh, the ability to turn on. Um, some analytics in there. So if teachers are sending emails, um, especially during Christmas time, uh, after their uh, W-2s are posted, we're finding, uh, we turn this on to where they're getting an email alert saying, hey, you're sending social security numbers or credit card numbers via email to somebody outside the district. What are you doing? type notifications. And I didn't think we would get a lot of hits, but it was amazing when I turned that on last year, um, how many staff members were actually sending their own W-2 to outside of the district with that information or sending credit card information to somebody else to buy something, say, hey, this, that, and the other. I'm like going, okay, you guys can't do that. So that was one way that we were able to do some unofficially and not where we were hands-on training, but they get this alert saying, hey, do you really need to send this via email? Oh, and that's fantastic if there's an, an intercept. Um, we're using Gaggle for students, and there's some you know, features as far as if right. you're using profanity or other things, you know, those email right. are actually blocked. Uh, but that's that's a great feature. So that's part of the 365, 365 when you're That's part of our uh, licensing that we have on the A3, That's which includes the 365. But there's we because of the data security, like I said, that's the big rock I'm trying to push. And one of the things that we really wanted to look at was how, how our data was being transmitted outside of our district. Um, and uh, the, the security component of it allows us to uh, checkmark predetermined things that uh, are FCC regulated or federal regulated credit card information, Gram-Tilly acts, different things that looks for those sequences um, and trains people up. So I can put personal messages in there saying, hey, you know, you don't need to be doing this. Let's look at how we can do this better. Wow. You know, things, things like that. And even the simple cases with our principals, when we record 
videos from surveillance videos of an event. Well, you got kids' faces in there. Past practices have been you burn a CD and you just, here you go. Well, who has that? Have you, has somebody signed off on it? Because you got other faces in there. So who's seeing it? Uh, so part of that conversation this last year has been, okay, when we download that, you send it, send the link and you send specifically who can open it. And if they forward it and somebody else tries to open it, you get that alert saying, hey, Johnny Sue wants access. Do you give him permission? You go, well, who's Johnny Sue? That's right. So it gives them that, right. oh, well, somebody else has it. And that is a key. This will be a geek of the week here in a little bit as far as encryption. A key thing that we need uh, is really our technologies are they've been outstripped by the security threats, mm -hmm. cell phone numbers and, yes. and cell phone spamming and robocalls and all that. And then also just, just email and the open unencrypted nature of it. I want to give some shout outs to some comments that are coming in the chat room. Uh, Peggy George says she's using the app called Hiya, H-I-Y-A on her iPhone to alert her to spam and telemarketing calls. And that is something that's recommended in that article as well as that podcast. Um, but the thing is, like two two things: voice over IP calling, and then uh, phone spoofing, have really caused this to be something completely out of the control of of the FCC of the government. Um, they can't basically tamp it down. Those apps are using blacklists, which you know have been used with reasonable effectiveness to curtail spamming on the email side. But it's so hard to do this on the on the phone side but that but you know and she's saying it works great and i i mean on my phone as well i've got apps and i'm i'm periodically seeing something that says you know suspected spam but it's really especially after my phishing incident last week i mean I, i'm just done with uh you know answering calls directly that are not in my address book and just right. waiting for the message so on that note we've got to say a couple things about the google event uh google announced a bunch of different things. They didn't mention Google Plus closing in the keynote, um, but I actually watched the Twit uh, special event, uh, Leo Laporte and the, the, the Twit network. Um, they always cover these events and kind of do a voiceover with commentary and, and so side, <laughs> side comments. So I watched that last night and um, most exciting thing for me with uh, the Pixel 3 was this idea of screening calls. So it's gonna use artificial intelligence to, to answer your call and then screen it and determine if it's something that you should listen to and answer or not. And so coming on the heels of these podcasts about robocalls and articles and everything like that, um, I, I told my, uh, my family at dinner tonight, I said, I'm really thinking about going back to Android because I had a little nine month affair with, with Android last year, right before I went to Egypt and I was uh, feeling paranoid and anyway, and it was great. I, I learned a lot of, and, and basically that I could do pretty much everything that I want to do. I could, you know, iMovie's not there. I don't, green screen's not there, but anyway, um, did any of the news from the Google event catch, catch your, uh, fancy or, or your well, attention? biggest yeah i didn't see all of it but the one that really stuck with me with all the stuff that were going on with schools was you know with all the uh, alexa and things of that nature was the the google home hub uh where it's controlling all your smart software things of that nature and what that implies uh not just for the consumer side at home but how that may infiltrate into the classroom and how it's going to be used 
there. Where is it going to go? Because I see that as the, to me, that was the next big, hmm, is, what does it mean for ed tech? Um, and where does that leave us with, other, you know, other IoT devices and uh, recording and controlling some kid just making some comments knowing that it's there and it turns off the lights and you know does this or starts recording so that was the biggest hmm where is this gonna go moment for me Mm. well it's certainly interesting uh and i will do a shout out to common sense media and uh their privacy you know advocacy there are some groups trying to promote smart assistance in the classroom and i had dabbled um you know, very unofficially uh, mm-hmm. with, oh, we could do a pilot project and have uh, Madam A, uh, we'll say, to be kind to folks who might be playing this aloud, um, <laughs> or, you know, hey, gee, um, it is amazing to me, and we've got multiple Google Minis at our house, you know, how that is continuing to advance. Like, you can't buy a, an analog product and have it get better and better, you know, over right. time. And that's what's happening with smart assistants. And I think it's a great challenge to, to you know, how do you stump it? It's kind of like if, if as we're making assignments or teachers make assignments, like, can you make assignments that kids can't just Google? You know, what are right. things that they've got to really do higher thinking and application and, and comparison and things like that. So thinking about having them be challenged, like how, you know, what can you, what can you do with, with the assistant and, and how is that going to grow? But privacy issues, recording, uh, there's just, you know, uh, student privacy. It, it's just, it's not a good thing. So if, if you're, uh, if you're putting it in a smart assistant in your classroom at this point, you know, it, it's probably not a great idea legally from a from a student privacy standpoint. And no. but I do think this, and I'm convinced of this, because um, there's a lot of hand wringing that's going on continues now, and it always has with older generation about you know these kids and their ways. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of of angst, and and with some good reason about the ways in which we're we're glued to our phones or addicted to them, yeah. and you know we maybe not relationally connecting to people in the same way that we would if we didn't have a phone. But I really think we're in a transition where we are merging with our technologies, uh, like as humans, um, we're, we're going to, to become uh, transhuman and we're going to just, you know, with IOT glasses, watches, all of that stuff, it's just going to become more and more part of who we are. And speech to text is such a big part of that. Translation is a big part of that. And so like, that's a very interesting digital literacy question because we've assumed, gosh, and I do think keyboarding is important when we still have keyboarding and we're keeping it in our curriculum because for the foreseeable future, we're going to be writing papers, you know, in, in high school and college and beyond, it's going to be important. But you know, I am increasingly using my voice to send text messages during the day, to give myself reminders, to set calendar appointments. Um, I, of course, I have to check that and, and correct spellings. And I have, thankfully haven't had anything too hugely embarrassing happen. But um, I think that's uh, wrestling with what does this mean for schools and, and how does the advent of smart assistants and, and speech to text technology like impact the curriculum and what we do in school or let kids do? It's a, uh, it's a big, a big, that's the big unknown. That's, that's why it was one of those who, where are we, where, where are we going with this? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're right. I think the, the potential is so there. So you, so like you and I, I believe we're that, you know, that small percentage early adopters is like, Ooh, what can it do? What can it do? 
Um, and I know there's some teachers out there that wants to see what it can do. Um, and it's a fine line. It's a fine line between um, experimenting and then putting yourself at risk or putting somebody else at risk. Because in the classroom is not the place to experiment when you're dealing with student information and, yeah. and uh, potential litig you know, litigious situation. Right. Absolutely. So we have to be careful with that. So. Yeah, I, I see this, uh, it, you know, the biggest thing on this was just the uh, the potential it has for, for my uh, special needs kids, my ELL kids, things of that nature, saying, oh, man, just what can it do? Uh, yeah. What can't you do? I mean, right. What are we limited by in our imagination here? Right, right. Um, well, we'll do a couple couple more articles here, and then we're, we'll, we may go a little bit after the top of the hour because we did start about five minutes late, but... Uh, under the, the title of Facebook, we've got a couple articles. Um, Ars Technica from September 26th. Ex-Facebook moderator sues Facebook over exposure to disturbing images. Um, it is really unfortunate, but it's just part of the reality of the, of the web today that one of the ways, well, one of the most uh, pervasive problems when it comes to user-created content is identifying bad actors and eliminating bad actor content. And that's an issue with quote, fake news, um, you know, Facebook, Facebook live, just letting people share pictures. You know, it can be quite horrific to um, even think about much less see the, the depravity and the darkness that is out there. And so <clears throat> folks are, are being hired and in some cases paid very little money to see up to two and 3,000 images a day and have to click and say whether or not, you know, they conform or don't to the community guidelines. And so that article was pretty interesting. And then another one, which I'd really commend, this is a New York Times article, soldiers in Facebook's war on fake news are feeling overrun. One of the things that I hadn't realized, and this article really brings it to the forefront, is how many users of Facebook are now outside the United States. I, I want to say it's like 80% and they've really had a focus campaign to do that. But unfortunately, and this is a story a lot about the Philippines in, um, I think this happened in Burma as well in the Philippines, like Facebook is, is, is used as almost the same word as the internet. It's like saying, mm -hmm. give me a tissue, give me a Kleenex. Like I'm on the internet, I'm on Facebook. And so Facebook has not been, you know, done due diligence in trying to provide tools and then also moderators who could keep, um, you know, content that doesn't comply with their community standards offline, but then also things that uh, basically uh, in the, in the case of this article, they talk about, you know, it can even destroy democracy. So there's a, a company called Rappler um, that has been working to, uh, you know, fact check. Um, and then, <laughs> What's what's happened, I think, in this one, they some of these people actually got got targeted. Yeah. Um, who were, right. Yeah. Who were, you know, trying to help, you know, keep the platform safe. And and this is that is definitely one of the dark sides with social media are trolling. And this is why I've got a we're going to do a digital citizenship week, I guess, a week later, but it's still in October. And we're going to have we have chapel each day. And so we're going to have a chance to share a few chapel talks. I've got to kind of think about what we're going to focus on. I know we're going to talk screen time and addiction and things like that. And we're going to have a recent graduate talk about social media. He works um, for our school on social media and manages our Instagrams and Facebooks and, and Snapchats and all that stuff. But 
I don't know, raising these issues as far as democracy and on a very personal note, like students and, and adults, we need to be very careful when we're going to share something on social media, which injects us into um, something very contentious, like the state of Israel or, you know, uh, pro-life, pro-choice, uh, the abortion issue or anything like that, um, because we can very quickly end up on a Reddit thread and there can be trolls that can jump all over and really, you know, oh, yeah. be uh, be very negative. So anyway, those those Facebook, I, I, I don't know, I, I just I wasn't as aware of the international aspects of this. I think I'd just been mainly hearing about U.S., you know, Facebook and, and things like that. Um, so have you are you have. Are you a Facebook user? Have you jump dropped your Facebook? Where where are you? No, I, I, you know, I use Facebook to just share with family and friends what you know what, <laughs> without my boys' consent, uh, you know. But how the kids are growing and what they're doing, what kind of silly things that they're doing, I I I stay away from the political side of things. I, I'll scroll through it and I won't even read through them honestly because, uh, as you said, the the amount of trolling that goes on, all the fake news or you know, who are these people that's posting it? And they may be my friends and they may be posting somebody else's stuff. I don't know who they are. I don't know what their opinions are. Uh, and, and I think that's part of the thing that we have to teach our kids, part of that digital citizenship. And sometimes even as adults, we don't quite get it. We know what it means, but look at your source and make up your own mind, you know. Yeah. And, and check your source. Google, your right? Because if it sounds fantastical, probably somebody's written about yeah. it and you know that's that was uh, that's something with my parents which i think they do a little bit more you know it's like dad before you share that like maybe google that and put the word snopes after it i mean yeah. maybe you know yeah and that's that's the thing that we have to really be careful of especially as more and more applications are user uploads yeah. everything from videos to stories to whatever it may be i mean wikipedia at one point had that stigma of oh it's fake news you know and and it still may have but and it still it, does among some teachers yes right? that it's just an illegitimate source right you really get into it and how quickly the community has curated the content right. yeah that's but unfortunately not all facebook and things like that are curated like that no definitely not definitely not well, i'm going to mention two quick positive articles to round this out and then we'll talk a little bit more about our geeks of the week and i think we're going to have to round out the show this is a CNN article from September 25th. A dog lost part of her skull to cancer, so researchers printed her a 3D one. And this is fantastic. Um, this is a great article to share with students thinking about 3D printing, thinking about the ways in which, you know, even just designing on Tinkercad. I mean, the, the kinds of things that we can be and probably should be doing in school as far as helping students be designers and and be participants in the new era of micromanufacturing and then the ways that this intersects with, with medicine and biology. Uh, it's just pretty, pretty phenomenal. And I, I, you know, I love this article because to me it was one of those, you know, what better problem-based learning scenarios could you provide uh, and say, how would you fix this with what we have now? How could you help this poor dog? Uh, and I think, I think that's part of the, what we're missing sometimes. You, know, you mentioned earlier, how do we how do we provide kids with questions that they can't Google? Um, and it's it's becoming more difficult because of the barrage of information. But they have to put information together. They have to look at resources and say, hey, we have this, we have Y, 
why can't we combine this to create this solution for this problem? Um, and I think that's why PBL and things like that, inquiry-based learning, all, all those different things are starting to take root. And the use of technology to help that is just phenomenal, the potential. If I was back in the classroom teaching science, I'd be like, oh, my God, you wouldn't have pried me out of the classroom at this point. That's right. That's right. Um, I'll do one more. This is an old article, an old, it's three years old, uh, but this is May, 2015 from the economist. And I, as somebody had shared it this week and I saw it, how do we prepare the students of today to be tomorrow's digital leaders? Uh, this is a great article and Google actually commissioned some research, you know, talking about what kinds of skills do employers want and how should schools be changing and, and thinking about, you know, problem solving and teamwork and communication and also curiosity and, you know, being, yeah. being able to learn and, and, uh, you know, being, being able to, uh, you know, not, not just take an information and, and uh, regurgitate it back on the test, but really being able to use it and apply it. Um, this is a, a great study and there's actually a full report you can link to. Right. Um, it's called the Driving Skills Agenda, and that's the the Cozen, and that is your Geek of the Week uh, that you mentioned. I think that is a fantastic resource because that's a framework that can really be applied and used, um, you know, more than just you know, kind of a of a headline. Um, any other comments or thoughts about that? How long have you all been using using the Cozen framework? Is that um, I've been using it for the last two years. Um, went to a conference um, in Missouri about a well, actually about a year and a half ago. Um, and we went through this because data privacy, we were getting breaches and DDoS attacks. And I'm like, okay, what, how do I fix this or what, what solutions out there? And I happened to go to a coasting conference down in Dallas, a CTO clinic with, uh, with the Dallas chapter, uh, that led me through that and then sought out, the the, uh, conference in Missouri, uh, because they were focusing on data security and Melissa Tebbenkamp, phenomenal person. If you haven't. Uh, met her or know about her, uh, Melissa Tebbenkamp. Um, she works with the COSIN National Chapter on Student Data Privacy, uh, very in the know. Uh, she actually came out and did a clinic for us this last uh, April uh, that we put on. Uh, and and it, it's a scary moment. It, it makes you go, man, I suck at my job type moment. But it's one of those that caught me got us thinking about what is it that we're really doing. Um, and it, it's a very, very simple toolkit. And that is not just for IT directors. And that's what I loved about it. I can send out pieces to the curriculum folks, to teachers, to my leadership principals. There's actually a lot of good information that if you're trying to change the the leadership and their think way of thinking is to start out with some of those flyers and uh, things that are already pre-can saying, hey, this is why it's important um, as we're moving into the digital curriculum world and everything is moving digital. We have to think about it. We're, if we're talking physical security and all the things that we're doing to secure our kids, um, this is just as important. Uh, and not because I'm in IT, but because the long-term ramifications, if we don't protect our kids' data, it, it's pretty far reaching, uh, in, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, my so. Geek of the Week is called Flowcrypt. Uh, I actually found it today. Interestingly, we're, uh, 
it was, it was with a bank and uh, I brought a flash drive in to give them some files and they're like, no, we, we can't take that. And so like, what's your tool then? How do I encrypt things? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And um, so I said, okay, well, I'll figure that out. So I, uh, this is a free tool. You can send up to five megabyte, megabyte attachments. Um, you end up needing to pay a little if you want to do more, but they have a 30 day trial and you can go up to 25. Pardon me. But um, it just works as an extension within Gmail. So um, that's good. I know from tax accountants, you know, we've been receiving, as everybody should be, uh, tax documents and things like that in an encrypted form, uh, generally where a passcode or a passphrase is is either shared separately over the phone. That's what I did in this case is I, I called them and I, I told them what the passphrase would be to open. Um, I just saw the email before the show. They said, oh, sorry, we, we can't open that, that kind of email, but here's our portal where you can upload that to us safely. And wow, so this is this is a real transition. So I love what you said earlier about trying to help educate, um, you know, staff, teachers about that. You know, it, you just never want to be emailing, you know, your W-2s, your tax information, you know, any information that you want to have in the, you wouldn't want in the hands of a criminal Right. Don't put it into email of any kind. So anyway, those are some geeks of the week. So we want to remind everybody you can find these links at edtechsr.com slash links. Uh, June, where can people connect with you if they would like to continue learning more about? They, yeah, they can reach me at more public schools at uh, June Kim at more schools.com uh, or via Twitter uh, at MPS technology. Awesome. And I am W Fryer on Twitter, periodically sharing on speedofcreativity.org. And uh, probably before the, um, uh, certainly the Christmas holidays, if not Thanksgiving, we probably ought to get our Ed, our uh, EdCamp OKC group together and just to, you know, make sure. It seems like we, we and you know, this is my fault, but we, uh, we, we wait to get our T-shirt stuff ready. So maybe we'll get that stuff going sooner. <laughs> Anyway, we've had a great. Well, it's a well. It's a well-oiled machine. The the people running that, um, guys. I <laughs> well, mean, I, all, I don't know who these people not. from more are that you know just help us organize and get all the water and food, and then then they don't. They're not, maybe they'll be there this year to celebrate in person. Yeah. So yeah, that'll, so. it'll be fantastic. I think we've we've run around. Well, usually three hundred, but I think registration's been more like four or five. And anyway, yeah. whatever. It's just I am great. I am geeked out, ready to. Get back to one. So well, we can do some more security talking probably at EdCamp. Uh, maybe help you know educating about digital citizenship. We've played around with the idea of hosting perhaps a late spring EdCamp that would be digital citizenship focused. I don't know if we'll we'll pull that out this year. I think we're going to do a January twelfth Google event. We did a G Camp last year. Got awesome. to get that confirmed. Eric Kurtz is who I've been talking to. I got to get that nailed down. So we've been a little over the top of the hour. We want to thank both Peggy George and Scott Summer for joining us live in the chat room. Uh, we want to encourage any of you who are listening to please share us on social media. Uh, if you want to leave a feedback on iTunes or you can probably find us anywhere. Fun or cure podcasts are curated. My favorite way of listening to podcasts now is to talk to uh, my Google assistant and say, hey, G, can you play such and such? Although there's words that she can't understand, like I want to listen to that. Is the Giuseppe Admins podcast. 
doesn't know how to handle that. But thanks to June Kim for joining us live. And uh, please check us out. We're going to continue to have guests here for another couple weeks, although we'll be taking Halloween off. And we wish everybody safe trick-or-treating. But Beth Holland, I think, is going to be our guest next week. And you will not want to miss that. So thanks, everybody. Stay safe and stay savvy. Thank <laughs> you.